in your Bible, the book of 1 Thessalonians today. I'm preaching in 1 Thessalonians on Wednesday nights and working our way through the book, and we're not going very fast, I'll tell you. And as I was studying it, I thought this week, uh, I was thinking for our Sunday morning services, and I just thought I'll just stay right there because it's so relevant to what is happening right now. So the subject is waiting for the Savior, waiting for the Savior. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, why don't you just stand and we'll read the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses of Scripture here, and uh, we'll just read them all together. Beginning in verse number 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Acacia. And for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised up from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, who delivered us from the wrath to come. And you may be seated. <clears throat> And so the subject is waiting for the Savior, waiting for the Savior. Paul and his evangelistic team or missionary team, Silas and Timothy, had gone to Thessalonica, the second largest city in Greece, where Paul founded a church. You can read the details of that in Acts chapter 17. There's the story of the founding of the church. We won't do that, of course, this morning. They only stayed there for about three weeks because there was an extreme and intense persecution that began to be forged against them, and they left, really, they fled for their own lives. And in verse number three, Paul writes to them sometime later, he's on his second missionary journey, we believe, when he wrote this, he wrote to them and in verse 3, he commended them for three things. Look at verse 3. He said, I remember your, without ceasing, your work of faith. Now, the three of the great qualities of Christians are faith and love 
and hope, aren't they? So you might want to circle those three words. Remember without ceasing. I remember without ceasing your work of faith. Real faith has works, doesn't it? And then your labor of love, how you labored in the Lord's work because of your love for Jesus and your patience of hope in the Lord Jesus. And why did they need patience? We'll go down to verse 10 because he said you have to wait for his son from heaven. It takes patience to wait, doesn't it? So Paul commends them for really an exemplary life. This is a good church. This is a church full of wonderful, godly people that are continuing to serve the Lord. And down in verse 8, he says something else commendable about them. He said, in every place your faith to God is spread abroad and that we need not to speak anything. In other words, Paul's saying, wherever I go in the world on my missionary journeys, People are talking about you. They're talking about the great faith that you have. They're to, I, I, when I give them the gospel, they've already heard about it because they've heard of what you're doing in this wonderful church here in Thessalonica. And then in verse 9, one of the great verses of this entire book, you'll see that phrase beginning in the middle of verse 9, how you turned to God from idols to serve the true or the living and true God. Mark that in your Bible. That is one of the great descriptions in the Bible of Christianity. It tells the story in just one little phrase of what it means to be a Christian. What is it? You turned to God in faith. You put your trust in Jesus Christ. You turn to God positively. There's the positive side of Christianity. And you turn from your idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for His Son from heaven. You know, the greatest evidence of a person's salvation, of course, is that there has been a change in their life, that there's a transformation that they've turned from an old way of life, an old lifestyle, they've turned to a new way of life. Just about everything that I want to do that just comes naturally is probably not of the Lord. And so it takes a whole new way of life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that the Scripture teaches us to follow Him. Now, you probably are saying, but preacher, these people were bowing down and worshiping these images, and uh, nobody does that today. We don't have idols in America, do we? Oh, I want to tell you we have idols. We just don't carve them out of wood and make them out of gold and silver and in the image of a human being, but we have idols. In fact, in America today, I would say the number one idol is self. The number one thing we try to do is please ourselves, isn't it? In fact, we're taught to do that, to put self first, me first, to look out for yourself. And so, yeah, we have our idols. We have the idol of leisure. And boy, we're going we're to take our leisure time. It doesn't matter who it affects. We have the idol of possessions. We're, we have to admit we're all a materialistic people. We live in a society that is so materialistic, and it puts it in front of us 
constantly, and we have to guard against being controlled, worshiping the idols of things. We worship in America power and position and prestige. And so, yes, we don't bow down to images as they did in ancient Greece, but we, we bow down to things that are just as much an idol to us as their idols were. And so Paul said, I commend you for all of these wonderful things. You turned to God. You turned away from your idols. And then he says in verse 10, and now you're waiting for his son from heaven. They were even at this point in time anticipating the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a dominant theme of this book. In fact, every chapter of 1 Thessalonians has a passage that refers to the second coming of Christ. And this was written about 50 or 51 A.D. And so what does that mean? Subtract 50 from uh, 2022. It's been about 1,972 years since Paul wrote this, 1,972 years ago. And he told them to wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven. So now we've been waiting. They had only waited 50 years. We've been waiting 1,972 years. And as we celebrate his first coming today, we're still waiting, aren't we? How many of you are waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to come today? Sure you are. You think about that often, don't you? Well, let's think about waiting for the Savior for the rest of our time this morning. Number one, before Christ came, people have been waiting for a long, long time. We're not the only people who have waited. People have been waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ since the dawn of history almost. And so before he came, going back to the ancient and the Old Testament times, people were looking for him and waiting for him even way back there. The coming of Christ, in fact, is the dominant theme of a Bible. If you are not familiar with the Bible very much, maybe you came today and you're visiting with us, you haven't been in church regularly for a long time, or maybe never, you know, don't know a lot about the Scripture. If you were to pick up a Bible and didn't know anything else and you just began to read through the Bible, it would appear to you before too long that this book is always talking about Jesus Christ coming. You may not even know that there's two comings in the Bible, that he came long ago, lived on the earth, died, resurrected, ascended back to heaven, but then he's going to come again. You may not even know the difference. But the dominant theme of Scripture, mentioned hundreds of times throughout the Bible, is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming back to the earth. Now, over and over, there are promises to that effect. Over and over, there are signs given to us to watch for, and we're told to watch and to wait for Him to look for His coming. And don't try to look these up in your Bible, because I'm going to go real fast. I started out with about 50 of these. I went down to 27. Now I'm down to 17. I just went through the Old Testament and marked 
promise after promise and sign after sign that Jesus is coming. So I'm going to read just a little phrase from these verses. Don't try to follow me. You're going to break your arm if you do, okay? Because I'm going to be in a hurry. The first promise that Jesus was ever going to come is in Genesis chapter 3. You don't have to go very far in your Bible. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, is going to bruise the serpent's head. The serpent is the devil. There's the promise. Christ is going to come, and there's going to be victory over the devil and victory over evil. Isn't that a great promise even today, all these years later, that this wickedness and evil that is deluging our society today, it's not always going to be here. Jesus is going to conquer evil. He's going to conquer death. He's going to conquer Satan. That's a promise of God's Word, the first promise of the Redeemer. Now, we're going to pick it up. Genesis 49 and 10. When He comes, He will come from the tribe of Judah. Psalm chapter 2 and verse 12. When He comes, the kings of the earth will take counsel against Him. Well, they did, didn't they? In Psalm 69 and 21, in his death, they will offer him gall and vinegar to drink, which he refused, if you remember. But you remember how they dipped that sponge when he was hanging on the cross, and they offered him that gall and vinegar? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin will conceive. That's never been done before or since. There's a sign and a promise. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In Isaiah 25 and 8, when he comes, he will swallow up death in victory. My, what a promise. Isaiah 25 and 8, there's an Old Testament promise of the resurrection. He's going to swallow up death. He is going to defeat death. What a sign of this one who will come. Isaiah 49 and 6, he will be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Everywhere across this earth, salvation will be experienced because this man came, a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 61.1 is a description of his ministry, and this was written 700 and some years before he came. Listen to how it describes his ministry. He will preach the gospel to the poor. He did that. He will heal the brokenhearted. He did that. He will proclaim both physical and spiritual liberty to those who are in bondage. He does that. He will proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, the time when God is extending favor and grace to the people. And he sure did that. He will proclaim the day of vengeance. In other words, Jesus will preach judgment as well as love. He will comfort those who mourn. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 34, Daniel says there's going to be someone who comes who will be a, like a stone cut out of a mountain without human hands, supernatural. 
and he will come and he will break in pieces and he will consume and crush every kingdom that's on the earth. He will come and he will take over and he will rule and reign forever and ever. A prophecy of the future. Daniel 7 and 13. He will be called the Son of Man. Read the book of Luke and over and over, how does Jesus always refer to himself? He doesn't say, I'm Jesus. He doesn't say, I'm Christ. What does he say? I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That was the name that he used when he referred to himself, meaning the ultimate man. Daniel 9 and 25 calls him Messiah the priest. The Old Testament word Messiah in the Hebrew is the same word as Christ in the Greek, Messiah, Christ, synonyms. He is called Messiah, the prince that will come. In Micah 5 and 2, 500 and some years before he was born, it says he will be born in Bethlehem of Judah, Micah 5, 2. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 7, when he comes, he will shake all nations. Well, he's, he's doing that right now. The nations of this world, you could describe it as they're being shaken right now, wouldn't you say? He will shake all nations. And then it adds another in Zechariah. It says he will be the desire of all nations, the desire of all nations. Zechariah 9 and 9, when he comes, here's another sign and a promise, he will be he will come riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. And when he comes riding on that colt, he will bring salvation. Zechariah chapter 11 and 12. This person will be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave in those days. In Zechariah 12 and 10, people will look on him whom they have pierced. And that could only mean death by the cross. The cross was death by piercing. The hands, the feet, the side, the head, all of it. There is even hundreds of years before he came an inference of the type of death that he would die. They will look on him whom they've pierced. Malachi, the last written prophet, of the Old Testament, chapter 3 and verse 1, when he comes, he will enter the temple and he will preach the gospel. Well, just study the gospels. Where did Jesus go every day? His routine was he got up and he went into the city of Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he preached to the people. And that was prophesied. Almost every detail, over and over. Now, I could give you 50 more of these. The dominant theme of the Old Testament is that this person, Messiah, Christ, is going to come into the world and all these things are going to be characteristic of him and promise after promise and sign after sign so that when he comes, you can look at him and you can identify him. You will know who he is. And so the people knew, they knew this early on and they waited and they waited and they waited, and they waited. Years went by. Decades went by. Centuries went by. 
Millenniums went by, and he still hadn't come. He still hadn't come. They waited for the Savior. And over time, many of them gave up waiting. And over time, many of them ceased to believe that he ever would come. And they began to spiritualize these texts and say, well, a, a real person is not going to come. Maybe that's talking about the whole nation. Maybe it's talking about some movement that's going to come, and they call it the Messiah. But it doesn't appear that some person is ever going to come. And so they became skeptical. And there were even some who mocked and some who scoffed and thought, ah, what do we believe in this stuff for? Just like today. And then he came. Do you know when he came? I did a lot of calculation on that this week. From the first promise in Genesis 3.15 until Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 1 when he was born is 3,974 years by Usher's chronology, which is accepted chronology of the ancient world. That's almost 4,000 years. 4,000 years, all these promises, all these signs looking for him, looking for him, waiting for him, and waiting for him, and he hadn't come. And then one day, the Christmas story, almost for millennia. Turn in your Bible with me, Galatians chapter 4. Now, that's just back a few of those small books from where you are in First Thessalonians. And I'll I could just quote this real quickly, and it's familiar, but I want you to just look at it and maybe mark it in your Bible. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of the time was come, in other words, when it was the exact time on God's timetable, God sent forth His Son. Christmas occurred back there at exactly the time when God wanted it to occur in history when the fullness of time was come. His son, you notice, is made of a woman. It doesn't mention a man. There's the virgin birth. When God's calendar said it's time, 3,974 years after he had first promised the coming of Christ, God sent his son made of a woman without a man, made under the law, a Jew who was born under the period of the Mosaic law. And here's the purpose of his coming, to redeem them that were under the law that we all might receive the adoption of sons. In other words, that we could be a part of God's family. He came for the point of redemption. And so all that waiting came to fruition. Now, there were times during that time there were signs during that first time. Nobody ought to have ever become a critic and a cynic of it. And we have those signs today. And we have those promises today for his second coming. There were some wise men that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 who lived over in Persia, who lived in what is now Iran or Iraq about eight or 900, maybe even a 1,000 miles, depending on where they lived, from Jerusalem where, in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. 
thousand miles away, there were some men, and they were reading their Bible. You never know who's reading the Bible, do you? And these men are studying God's Word, and they come to the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, and they see this new star that appears in the heavens. And they have been study, they've been studying astronomy for years and years. They've charted the heavens as best they can. And somebody said, that star is new. It's never been here before. And so they began to study the Scriptures. And they said, well, there will come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, will rise out of Israel. And they put two and two together and figured that star is a sign that the Messiah, the future king of the world, has been born. Numbers 24, 17. And they went, you know, it took them almost a year to get there, maybe a little longer. He's no longer in a manger, though all the scenes depict that. He's no longer in a manger. He's living in a house in Nazareth. He's back home by the time they get there. He's a little, he may be a little toddler by the time they get there. And then we have Luke chapter 2. Turn there with me. And this is really interesting to me. In Luke chapter 2, we have some people who recognize the signs, and they knew him, and they claimed those promises. Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, there's a man. His name is Simeon. And in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25, let's just read it together. Begin there with me. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was a just and devout man, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What's the consolation of Israel? That's the coming of the Messiah. So he's been waiting for that. And this man says that the Holy Ghost was, it says the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. The Holy Spirit led him to go up to the temple at the same time that Mary and Joseph brought in Jesus to circumcise him to do after the custom of the law for every Jew. And he took the baby up in his arms, verse 28, and he blessed God. And he said, O oh Lord, now let me depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Stop, look, and listen at that verse, ladies and gentlemen. Salvation is not a church. Salvation is not a plan of life. Salvation is a little baby that a man could hold in his arms, a person who grew up to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Salvation is a person, and he held the person as a baby. And he said, my eyes have looked into the face of salvation. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. Mine eyes have seen your salvation. And he cradled that little baby as they were bringing him up to the temple there. And in verse 31, he says, Mine eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. That's right. 
Not a limited number of people. All people can have that salvation. You can have that salvation if you're sitting here today and you've never experienced it. And he will be a light to bring light to the Gentiles. And he'll bring glory to the people of Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at the things that Simeon was saying. And then Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. People will be judged by how they treat him, what, how they relate to him. They will, be, they will rise or fall depending on that. And he will be a sign which shall be spoken against. He's still being spoken against. There's still millions who don't like the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this fella, Klaus Schwab, that I talked to you about a lot when we talked about the Great Reset, and he's written this book. He's the head of this elitist organization now in, in, in the country. He said this week, all this stuff about Jesus is fake news. That's what the world thinks of him. Lots of people in the world think that of him. Fake news. That baby didn't come. He wasn't born. Fake news. He was a liar, and the people that proclaim him are liars. He said a sword will pierce through his own soul. Speaking of the cross, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And so this man believe those signs, and he looked for him, and he waited his whole life, and he saw Jesus. Well, you can continue the reading. There was a woman there. Her name is Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Aser. She was of great age. She would have been about 99, and she had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of a fourscore and, uh, four and four years. She was at least 100 years old, maybe more, because she'd been widowed for uh, 84 years. So she is an ancient lady. Tradition says she lived in the temple, and she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she came in about the same time, and she worship the Lord Jesus Christ herself, this ancient woman. Yeah, there were people who had been looking for him all of their lives, but not many. Now, like them, like them, we're waiting for him. And we've been waiting for him now for almost 2,000 years. Turn in your Bible, Second Peter chapter number 3. And the question is, why are we waiting? Why hasn't he come? And do you know God's Word tells us why Jesus hasn't come? Why hasn't he come? Boy, I wish he would come. Now, when I was real young, I didn't want him to come because I had my own plans, you know. But you know right now, man, be fine with me. I think I could handle it, don't you? If Jesus were to come today and catch us up in this rapture. I believe we could handle it. Well, 
Why hasn't he come is the question. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. You know why he hasn't come? Because it's not been a long time to God. Because the Lord measures time differently than you and I measure time. The reason he hadn't come is God doesn't measure time like you and me. God measures time. A day is like, a thousand years is like a day to him. In fact, there's a whole theology of really conservative good people, and I could almost go by this, that as the Lord created the earth in seven days, that he's going to divide history by seven days, and it's going to be 7,000 years. And these people believe that the coming of Jesus is right around the corner because they say, okay, you had about 2,000 years from creation to the flood, 2,000 more years from the flood to the birth of Christ. It's been 2,000 years from the birth of Christ to where we are. you got to have 1,000 years for the millennium, which means we're out of time. We've got our 7,000 years, one day of a thousand years for each uh, era of life, if you will, a creation week only in thousands. Now, I can't prove that, but it sort of infers it here, doesn't it, that the Lord measures time, and for us, a millennium is forever, a thousand years. But with the Lord, who is eternal, It's just one day in his calculation. There's another reason he hasn't come. He hasn't come because he doesn't measure time as we do. Secondly, verse 9, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises about coming, but he is long-suffering to usward and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He hasn't come because God is patient. God wants every person, he wants every person possible to come to him in a saving knowledge. You see, the Bible talks about all the Christians, all Christians everywhere. It refers to us as the bride of Christ. And he hasn't come because his bride is not complete. And somewhere... Someday, on this earth, the last person will get saved. The last name to go into that Lamb's Book of Life I talked to you about recently, the last name will be added, and the Lord will say, okay, my bride is complete, and he'll come. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He knows when the last soul will be saved. And then there's another reason. It's not in your Bible, but I think it's a rational thing, and that is it's reasonable to assume, isn't it, that the infinite God who created the heavens and the earth knows some things we don't know. And so I'm waiting They waited 3,974 years, and then Jesus came from 
Genesis 3 to the birth of Christ. I've only waited, or our generation has only waited a little over 2,000 years, not, maybe not even quite that. So when is he going to come? Well, we don't know. But we do see signs, and all of the signs really have begun to come together. What is it that God knows that we don't know that holds back the coming of the Lord? Well, he'll reveal that to us someday. Until then, our job is to wait. And one last thing, while we wait, we work. While we wait, we work. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brethren, in the light of all that he has been teaching, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, you know that your labor is not in vain. What we're doing matters. It matters to God. It matters to the cause of Jesus Christ. If you're singing in the choir and singing praise to God, it matters. If you're teaching Sunday school, it matters. If you're making visits and praying for the lost people and trying to go and share the gospel with folks, it matters. The world is not going to recognize us. It's not going to give us claim, acclaim and fame. It's not, it's not going to recognize our efforts. But there is one who is keeping the books, isn't there? And while we wait, we work. The Great Commission is still in effect. Almost everybody in this room and watching today on television, you have lost loved ones. My goodness, you need to be urgent in trying to reach those, those relatives, those family members. You have friends that don't know the Savior. Have you ever pressed upon them with all the urgency of your heart and your mind their need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? There's a lost world out there. Millions and millions of people yet who have not heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we send our missionaries. Their names are in the program today. One of them is sitting here before us. All over the world, there are people going and taking the gospel because they believe the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. And there's an urgency about that. I would urge you not to forget your own children and your own family. There's a guy I listened to on the radio on the uh, AFA station out of Dillon. I think it's 95.3 or something like that on the radio. His name is Andrew Ham or Abraham Hamilton III. He comes on on the afternoon about 5 or 6 o'clock, and sometimes in, I'm in my car and I listen to him. And do you know what he says every afternoon almost on his program? He says, now, y'all are ready to leave work. It's about 5 or 6 o'clock. You're about ready to get in your car and go home, right? Now you're going to your full-time job. Boy, I really like that. 
You're going to your full-time job. And then he always says, your full-time job is your family. Your full-time job is those little kids that God gave you that you first priority in your life, not your career, not gaining acclaim or, or gaining possessions in life. First priority of life, disciple those children. Those children are your first responsibility for God in your life. Are you training them up? Are you making sure they're regularly and faithfully in Sunday school and at the church? Are you modeling before them a life of righteousness and godliness? As they watch you, are they seeing duplicity and hypocrisy, one thing at the church and something else at home, or are they seeing in you? No, mom and dad are the true blue. They're what they say they are. And those kids are coming up with a role model that's worth following after. You see, the gospel still has power. It's been 1900, or <clears throat> pardon me, it's been 2,000 years now since Jesus was here on the earth. But the gospel has not lost one bit of its power. It is still the power of God to salvation. And so, while we wait, we work. And maybe, just maybe, even after all this time, we'll be in the number like Simeon and Anna and those Persian astronomers were. And we'll see all these signs come to fruition, and we'll actually see the Lord Jesus Christ with our eyes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Oh, praise God at the very thought of that. I hope I'll live to see him. Now, I'm getting up there. And somebody said, well, he sure better hurry up. And you're right on that. On the other hand, you know, it's going to be so sudden. It won't matter how old you are. When he comes, he comes. But if he doesn't come, and they take me over there or wherever they take me to the funeral home, and they put my body in the ground, I still have a promise. Because I live, you will live also. And I'm coming back. I'm coming back with him. Amen? My, what? Heads I win, tails I win. I got it covered either way when I'm in Jesus. I think y'all need a little of that today during this Christmas season with the world as dark as it is. Some of y'all haven't seen you smile in six months. Well, you just need to get your eyes on Jesus. You've been watching Fox News too much is what's wrong with you. And boy, if you watch that, you're going to want to jump off a bridge somewhere. But I'll tell you, you get your eyes on the king, there's no disappointment in Jesus, is there? No, sir. That's why we have joy. Now, until he comes, until he comes, we're in what we call the age of grace. Isaiah there called it the acceptable year of the Lord. Same thing. The age of God's favor. Just think about the favor of God on this dark world today. Think about 
how this world so rejects him, even hates him, and yet he keeps on waiting. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anybody to perish, and he doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to perish. You came to church this morning. Do you really know Christ as your Savior and your Lord? Has there ever been that moment, that time when you said, you know what? I am going to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior. And you put your faith in Him. Maybe you walked down an aisle to church and did it. Maybe some Christian came to your home and opened up the Bible and showed you the plan of salvation and you trusted Christ there. Maybe you were reading a book, a Christian book, and it gave the plan of salvation, and you trusted the Lord there. Maybe we're listening to a radio program or watching a preacher on television, as many are doing right now from here, and you trusted Christ as your Savior. Maybe none of that. Maybe you had heard the gospel, and one day in your sin and in your desperation, you just simply got down on your knees somewhere at home by your bed or You don't even have to get on your knees. And you just cried out to God and said, God, you sent Jesus to die for my sins. And he resurrected. He is the living Savior who promised to save me. Lord, today, I trust you as my Savior. doesn't matter when or where or how, but, oh, it is so important that you take advantage of his grace and his love this morning. First Thessalonians there, chapter 1 and verse 10. Notice the last words of that verse. It says, you're waiting for him to come to save you from the wrath to come. And so if you don't know Christ today and he comes, that wrath to come is a description of the tribulation period. You don't want to be here for that. So today... Come into the ark of safety. Come into the, to the presence of God through coming to his son, whose birthday we're celebrating. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.